I'm glad to stick to our norms and not start on time. <laughs> My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I'm the acting director of the South Asia Center. And as a part of our program, we have one of the most interesting events today, which is Greg Gottlieb, from, uh, who is the Pakistan mission director for USAID. And I like the topic, I farm. Yeah. Um, on food security and uh, innovation commercialization. And he's, I believe he's still jet lagged, but he's also going to give a wonderful talk. I'm also reminded by him that he's a trial attorney. So please watch what you say. That could be used against you. Um, without wasting much time, his bio is here, and I won't go into the bio. I'll let him, um, I'll give him the floor right away. And he's going to speak to you for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then we'll engage in a roundtable discussion. He also would like more um, on an, you'd like the session to be more on an interactive right. basis. Greg, yours. Thank you, uh, thanks very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with everybody. It's uh, get out of Islamabad once in a while. Uh, it's a little hot there now, so it's a pleasure to be here in the cool weather. Uh, I'll just open the session by saying that um, just acknowledge what uh, the killings that just took place in Karachi last night, yesterday, and it's another difficult event, I think, for the country, um, given the issues that it struggles with. So that's unfortunate, but it's been sort of the daily grind there for a, a while. Um, there's a lot of expertise in the room, so I'm not going to sit in front of you and pretend that I'm actually a food security expert. I have managed many food security programs. I've worked with uh, Dr. Chopak here for many years on early warning. Uh, and, um, but uh, I'm reminded that we just had a recent uh, conference out in um, Islamabad, which followed from one here, in which we had John Meller and Paul DeRoche and many others uh, who are really uh, the, the real source of knowledge on this. What I want to do, uh, what I've been trying to do in the couple of years that I've been in Pakistan when I come into DC is I've tried to highlight issues that I feel um, are sort of on the more of the, the smaller uh, parts of our program. We are big on energy out there. We're very big in stability uh, in uh, the Fatah area. But I've tried to highlight uh, issues around uh, health and education. And now I want to focus on agriculture because it's also it's a, it's one of those issues that the country faces. It hasn't had a lot of attention. We've really appreciated what's happened recently. There was a big, uh, very good um, a conference here. We brought that conference out there. Uh, I think we, uh, we got some good, notori uh, good notice there and uh, a, a good commitment from some of the important ministers there who I think have been looking for opportunities to, to raise this issue. So um, what I wanted to do is just, I wanted to note in this talk just a few of the major issues that, are, that we're faced with. In the past, I've talked about uh, the, you know, we, we, we talk about this in terms of food, uh, of food security. I always want to highlight what nutrition uh, circumstance is in Pakistan. It's important to keep it in mind. 44% of all kids in Pakistan are stunted. 15% uh, of kids suffer from acute malnutrition. I spent 25 years doing emergency work. Uh, and in an emergency, 10%, when you reach 10% in acute malnutrition, you're hooking kids up to drips. That's what you're doing. So every day in Pakistan across the country, there's an, there has been an emergency, and this is ongoing for years. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind as we talk about food security, because it's not just about how much Pakistan grows, but it's, 
what and what it grows, but it's it's how kids get access to food, how mothers get access to their food, and it's just important to keep those in mind as we uh, as we talk about what agriculture can do uh, for the country. So, you know, agriculture has really underachieved in the last few decades. Um, its growth has slipped to around three percent, uh, which is below what the uh, GDP growth is right now, which is somewhere around maybe four point three, four point four percent. And that's been from the last uh, sort of uh, decade or so. Um, the domestic markets are out of sync with the international markets. Part of that's due to subsidies. I'm not going to, um, there was some great uh, work that was done uh, on um, looking at subsidies both on wheat and fertilizer in the conference out there. In fact, one of the slides was just a uh, formula, mathematical formula, and I, I had nightmares of high school algebra when I saw that. But uh, I think that people have done, I think there's lots of evidence as to how those markets are distorted, uh, making it more difficult for Pakistan to be competitive in world markets. In fact, right now there's a surplus of wheat. I think the crop is coming in at a record of over 26 million tons, but Pakistan is unable to export because the price of that is too high. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, it's also shrunk as a part of the economy. It's now about 22% of the economy, but 45% of the people are still uh, make their living in, in, in agriculture. So there's great potential there for growth to benefit the 45% of the people that are engaged uh, in that in the rural areas in agriculture. And also, it's important to note the impact of the 18th Amendment, because uh, when the country devolved authorities to the provinces, um, the, the ministry around uh, on, on food security and agriculture was disbanded. And so it's made it more difficult at the national level to deal with uh, the broader issues. Now, that's not to say that, that under the present government they haven't made some strides. I mean, the passage of the seed law, if you've been following that, was, was actually a significant, I think, uh, step forward for the country because it could allow uh, bigger trade and hybrids, not so much GMO yet because there's not this intellectual property uh, component that needs to be there. But on hybrids alone, that could be significant for the country and have a real impact for farmers. Um, I think one of the things that when I was the uh, deputy for Bureau for Food Security and worked on the presidential initiative, Feed the Future, I mean, that was one of the things that you are aware of, that there are plenty of good hybrids out there, it doesn't have to be GMO, that can really uh, uh, increased production. So I think the seed law is going to be important for, uh, for uh, helping the country modernize. Um, I just wanted to note some of the issues that I think we are, uh, we're going to grapple with over time. And I don't, want to, I don't need to go into them in detail because I'm sure most of you are pretty aware of them. Um, but, you know, we have weaknesses in research and development. We have uh, issues in extension. The irrigation issue is a huge issue for the country. I was just up in, um, I was just up north in Skardu, uh, where we had helped do a dam and, a, and uh, finish a dam and uh, irrigate about 15,000 uh, acres. And uh, one of the things that's been noted is that farmers now think that they're still saying we don't have enough water to do this and that. And what they don't know is that they've reduced their losses because we put in new canals from about 40% to 5%. 
So if that's the condition across much of the rest of the country, you could see how much water is being lost just through the canal system. I think everybody realizes that the canal system, as brilliant as it is, needs, it needs to be maintained. And it needs to be accompanied by the kinds of changes in uh, more drought-tolerant seed and other kinds, other forms of irrigation that are putting less water on the, on the fields. Um, ag credit is another huge issue that farmers face. Uh, John Miller, when he came out recently to Pakistan, spoke, I think, quite eloquently in an op-ed about the farmers that you want to target, those that own between 5 and 50 acres, the, the guys that are really commercially viable, not the guys that are lower than 5 acres, and the guys that have lots of acres can modernize, but trying to make sure that those are the farmers that you can grow with. And, you know, in our programming, uh, I think one of the shifts that we'll make, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but we have, we're doing more on trying to bring financing into the field. So we've just uh, put in financing with four banks for uh, small and medium enterprises, and that includes uh, these farmers uh, that we want to try to target. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit later about another um, uh, investment that we're trying to do to, to target the same uh, areas. Um, there's a weakness in connecting sort of the value chains and commercialization. We did a lot of work recently uh, with mango exports. Everybody knows Pakistan has the world's best man mangoes. I is there any disagreement on that? We'll talk to you about that. But we'll talk to you about that. And you over there from Haiti, forget it. But, um, but there is a, uh, I think anybody that's worked in that industry uh, realizes that there's great potential um, for the export of those mangoes. So we, we work with a, you know, a, a series of farmers to upgrade their, uh, their, the way that they harvested, the way they packed it, the machinery that dealt with it, the hot water processes. And you realize that there, there is great potential to do that. But within a lot of crops that we've, we worked in, cherries, apricots, and others, um, you realize that uh, there's not as much a sense of commercializing that. And that is the processing side of things. And that's one of the things that we've been trying to do like with other donors. As I said, I was just up in Skardu and saw what the potential is. Now they're ex actually exporting directly from there to uh, the Gulf, which is a good sign. But again, it's a very small, it's very small. So the challenge for the country is how to get more groups involved with that value change. And as Daroche pointed out in his talk out there, it's how to connect that value chain work with what's happening in the urban and peri-urban areas. Those are growth areas. Urban growth is one of the highest, I think, in the world in Pakistan. So there's a market for that produce there if farmers can take advantage of it. Um, Equally so, livestock and dairy. There's no reason in the world why Pakistan should not be a major exporter of meat and milk and, and, and milk products to the Gulf. Um, work that USAID has done in Ethiopia is uh, we've supported the uh, building of 12 um, uh, abattoirs uh, that export, I think, almost 2,000 carcasses of goats and sheep and cattle to the Gulf every day. I mean, even the, pack, the, the it's now the second largest uh, export for Ethiopia behind coffee, I think, is meat. And that's been done in the last 10, 15 years. Pakistan, I believe the number is they're the fourth largest livestock 
country in the world. So there's no reason why halal meat should not be going out of Pakistan to the Gulf. That is an, that's a market that can absorb it. And um, so we've been doing work on dairy, not so much on livestock, but we've been doing a lot of work on dairy to improve the quality of the herds using artificial insemination, doing some extension work. But again, and that's in the Punjab mostly, but again, that's just a, you know, we've reached about 9,000 farmers, but if you look at the size of Pakistan and the numbers, a lot more needs to be done. Um, I've talked a little bit already about poverty and malnutrition, but I do want to, I do want to comment a little bit on uh, what Paul DeRoche was, the point Paul was trying to make in, in Islamabad. And that is that he was talking about poverty and malnutrition, but he was talking about you're not going to get an improvement in agriculture, really, unless you address some of those issues around that, which is, and the governance and devolution issue, unless you're dealing with land reform, health and education issues, um, social protection issues. Gender equity, which is similar. I mean, he made a, I think Paul made a really big point about the, what happens to women in, in the inequities that they suffer at the farm level, particularly because so many men uh, migrate out and the burdens that are left on them. Um, we've, of course, every, all of us who've worked on projects have seen the benefits for women when they have a measure of independence. There was a woman I'd met up in Skardu and who said, you know, we helped her with a greenhouse and uh, and um, processing of apricots and other fruits. And she just said, I have my own money now. I send my kids to school. I don't ask my husband for money anymore. My kids are healthier. And you see the benefits of that. So <coughs> every program I think that we and other donors use or, or, or foster is, um, keeps that in mind. But I think it's, even as we look at the technical side of things, um, we have to deal with Social side, sorry, that's a little bit of something in there. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about, there's a couple of issues I want to get to at the end. How am I doing on time? Three minutes. Should I speak faster? Three minutes. No, okay. Um, most of our ag programs are, we've, we've been in that sort of commercialization value chain. We've done the dairy work. Uh, we also have looked a lot at uh, how, to, how to target small and medium enterprises with financing. That's where we're moving to. Uh, as I said, we have a $60 million uh, loan guarantee program with four banks uh, that are widespread. Kushali Bank is one of those, first micro enterprise, uh, JS, which is good, gives us good coverage in the country. But the other thing that we've done is we've set up um, three equity funds, which is the first time AIDS ever done it. We're, we put up, for three funds, so we put up $25 million per fund. Abraj Capital uh, out of the Gulf is, puts, is putting up, actually, they're raising $100 million versus our 25 And the other two banks are raising 25 to match ours. And so uh, those groups are looking to invest. That, those funds are to invest in small and medium enterprises. We haven't ever tried that before. And the purpose is to bring credit into those businesses uh, that have lacked it. Uh, one of the investors in particular is going to target the agriculture sector. So what we're hoping for is by, through our $50 million investment, we can increase that sort of um, access for the those middle farmers to, one, credit, and two, access into markets. So it's a kind of a unique, I think, um, 
experiment that will see how it works. Um, the equity side is difficult because many are family-owned businesses, and we don't know how receptive they'll be to um, um, equity investments, particularly if they keep two sets of books. So you know, it's, it's a little, it could be a little complicated. Um, but those are two, I think, really exciting things that we're looking at. I, I just want to note uh, three other issues that are uh, that maybe we can talk about here. Um, one is uh, the water crisis that is beginning to stalk the country. Um, you wouldn't know it by the floods that we just had last year. But in fact, uh, the per capita availability of water, I think at Independence was around 5,000, what was it, 5,000 cubic feet per person per year. It's now down to around 1,350. So it's, 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 and it's, as the population grows, per capita availability is continuing to decline. That, then, we can join with the issue of climate change. Um, anybody that's uh, been in, I, I can't blame the 2005 earthquake on climate change. But I think the extent of the floods we've seen recently, people, you know, looks like a, phenom a changing phenomenon for the country. So that is another issue that needs to get a lot more discussion in the country. I was certainly glad to see it as part of the discussion out there. And the final issue, I think, which really we have to deal with here is, besides the macroeconomic reforms that need to take place uh, in general, is just this lack of uh, kind of crop diversification in the country. I mean, it's 70% of the land is devoted to four crops. So there's a lot more that needs to be done to get people off of that. And since in the rural, in many of the, for many of the people that are malnourished, I mean, we're looking at for some people, 50 to 70 percent of their nutrition comes from one crop, which is wheat, and that's just not a, that's not a, that's that's a contributing factor to the horrible malnutrition that we see. So, I think as John Miller said and others said, there's tremendous potential in the country still for agricultural growth. It can be, it, good agriculture can bring, you know, can lead to faster growth than even we see on the industrial side. We know that from, we've been touting that from Feed the Future for a while. And I do think that um, the only problem for us is when we look at our budget, our, our budget is in decline. And so the portion that we can devote to agriculture, unfortunately, has also declined since we started uh, with uh, Kerry Luger Berman. So uh, we are going to have to be smarter about where we invest and how we can leverage our money to, uh, to improve things. So uh, I'm going to stop there. And um, I look forward to hearing your questions and your expertise. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. I'll start off right away, and I'll ask you the first question that I'll ask you. Do you, do you see your budget going up? If you want to see your budget going up, what are the kind of arguments, the success stories that you would tell to make a convincing yeah. argument to get your budget to upswing again? Yeah. Um, uh, right now, I do not see the budget going up, the overall budget. I, um, I, I don't, I think as things settle out a bit in, Islam, in, um, uh, in that area, particularly in Afghanistan, I see that budget sort of settling down probably somewhere. I'm hoping, I was just on the Hill yesterday begging for some stability, but uh, I think it'll settle somewhere around the $400 million level, somewhere around that. We were 478 last year, I think, or 5, 546. We're kind of moving downward. Um, I think if it stabilizes at that, I think there's two, one very important factor to consider. Um, 
when we started Kerry Luger Berman, you know, um, the first year's budget was about $1.3 billion. So a lot of that went to deal with the 2010 floods, almost a half a billion dollars. Um, the budget has continued to come down. But I think at that level, as I said to people, look, you don't get a billion dollars to do development. You get a billion dollars to do politics. And, and so a lot of what we did uh, was focused on um, what were perceived to be immediate political issues, and that turned out to be energy and stability in Fatah. The other things that we did are, are great things, and it's what we do in aid for most of the part. We do food security, we, you know, we, do, uh, we work with communities on their businesses, we do health, we do education. We do energy, but we haven't done it in a big way. So I do think over time what we will see is a change in, those, in the composition, which I hope will allow us to shift funding uh, a little bit more to some more of the social programs and a little less away from, um, uh, from some of the infrastructure things we were doing. And hopefully um, what's happening with Zarbi Azib uh, in Fatah will allow us to um, have to devote fewer funds to that in terms of rebuilding and more funds in terms of, of building up the social program. So. There's one more question that I wanted to ask you is the weaknesses in the research and development structure, infrastructure, yeah. is this, part of this has to do with the human capital also. Yeah. Um, in your assessment, where do you see that these are long-term investments for any country to build up human capital and infrastructure in developing the R&D infrastructure in a country? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have as, uh, probably the depth of knowledge about the ag sector as I should, but, you know, we, we realize that we have, a, we have in Faisalabad, you know, we've had a, a, a world-class institution, I mean, uh, that I think the U.S. helped get going some years ago. But with the sort of lack of funding to agriculture over the years, I think there's been Probably, and somebody can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think there's been a discouragement of people to devote themselves to agriculture. I mean, we see in the older generation, uh, we see hugely competent people there. I mean, you know, brilliant agriculturalists. But underneath, we don't see a crop of younger people coming up on agriculture. So obviously more has to be done. I mean, we, we, one of our investments is back with Faisalabad in a, in a uh, what we call, it's a center of excellence, really. It's a, but it's, it's designed to try to help Faisalabad build up its linkages with private sectors so it can be more responsive to what the markets are, as opposed to simply being a research center. But more, um, it's a lot of like what happens at UC Davis and other universities here, where you're more connected to the markets. Mm -hmm. But clearly, uh, I know that talking to the Higher Education Commission in the future, what their, their longer-term plan is to open up several more uh, schools of agriculture. And the question will be whether we can, we'll have enough uh, you know, academics and practical researchers to staff those out to provide students with uh, um, you know, the quality that they need in terms of their education. Um, I mean, we could, we could get into the deeper issue of education and the, that quality, but I think that's for, a, that's for yet another talk. Sure. The floor is open if you want to ask a question. You should. Not a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> Please identify yourself before. Yeah, my name is uh, Danish Majid. Um, I have two questions. Uh, 
first, I don't mean to sound like a typical uh, pro-India, anti-Pakistan foreign policy hawk, but um, with the climate that's in West Punjab, uh, you know, the extreme, extremist jihadi climate that's taking place, what's the scene for agriculture look like there? And second, um, in India, there's definitely a booming uh, environment for social entrepreneurship, whether in the agriculture sector or certain uh, minority empowerment sector. Um, it's become such a lucrative trade there and, and impactful at the same time. But what, what, are the, what would the prospects be like for a social entrepreneurship scene in Pakistan? Well, I mean, there's, there's plenty of you know, hard-charging social entrepreneurs in Pakistan. I'm not so sure that they're in the ag sector, though, because when you look at when we, some of the things that we've worked on, in fact, we do a, we do a competition with MIT every year to look at new and innovative uh, ideas that have come up. And particularly, I mean, Pakistan, I mean, India has a tech center, but so does, so does Pakistan. It has some incredibly good innovators in, in the IT sector. And there's a lot, I think, that's going on in others, in, in uh, you know, manufacturing and building, but, uh, you know, but still, we, we have not, in the ag sector, uh, had the real investment in it, and I think a lot of the macro policies have inhibited the growth so that it's a, it, Pakistan is a competitor. I know that there's a concern, it's been discussed about, you know, when you, if you open the border to trade, that many of the Pakistani farmers worry that they'll be swamped by the Indian uh, trade, but, you know, equally so, I think, you know, new technologies that come in will benefit those farmers. People will adopt them. I think what we can help do now, is we, which we've done in some of our programs, is to provide new and uh, innovative, you know, um, machinery, which is a program that we've got coming up, which is designed to provide access to credit for farmers to U.S. machinery that can help modernize. And one of the things we've done under Feed the Future, actually, is we've actually tapped into the Indian market for innovations and actually brought those to Africa, which has been kind of an interesting, um, I think, way. It wouldn't it be nice if we could do the same with Pakistan? You know, I, just to go to your question of the, the Punjab, um, you know, it's an interesting place because um, there, yes, there are those issues that I think have inhibited opening trade more. Uh, equally so, though, I think when you meet with a number of uh, sort of major Pakistani businessmen, there is a very, there is a high degree of desire to trade across that border. I mean, there are, there is this, there is a group that's assembled that a very, uh, you know, successful businessmen on both sides of the border that meet uh, relatively regularly. I mean, obviously the politics have perhaps slowed that a bit, but uh, recently, but you know, the hope is that over time. Uh, they'll, you know, that border is going to open up and benefit both countries with trade. Clearly, I think Pakistan would benefit hugely from that trade, uh, and it's, so would many of its manufacturers and, and farmers over time. But the way it goes, yeah. David Mickle with the Stimson Center. I'd like to to link together a few of the different points uh, that you made. The first being the prospects for uh, dairy and meat exports as being a potential growth sector. Uh, but you also concluded your remarks by uh, highlighting the emerging water crisis or the ongoing water mm -hmm. crisis in Pakistan. And, and meat and dairy are very water intensive. Yeah, they are. Um, you touched on the incredible irrigation losses, uh, 
90% of Pakistan's yeah. water goes to the agricultural sector, so uh, there is tremendous scope for uh, efficiencies and conservation in the agricultural sector. So potentially uh, an ability to square that circle, realizing uh, water efficiency in one agricultural sector to uh, provide water to another meat and dairy and growth sector. Yeah. But without those efficiencies, without starting to square that circle, pushing on the meat and dairy sector could be a, just another challenge for yeah. Pakistan's water resources. So I wonder if you could elaborate on yeah. that, that yeah. process could, could, could go forward. Yeah, I mean, just recently there was a proposal to use the, you know, tar coal. The only problem with tar coal is it's so dirty that you have to use a tremendous amount of water to wash it. So yeah, yet another issue there. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's definitely going to be a, an issue for them. Um, part of the, you know, when you look at the amount of investment that's gone into agriculture, it just simply hasn't been enough to deal with the problems of those canals. And there is, you know, we have worked on new canals, which will, of course, be more efficient. But a lot of the old canals are damaged and leak, and very much leak. So, you know, it would seem to me that, that that's a bit of low-hanging fruit for the country because that's a repair job. That's not, if you didn't even want to deal with new canals, you just wanted to deal with what you have, you could, you could I mean, that's one thing that money could be devoted to. Um, you know, I, I can't say, I've, I haven't looked at the national budget to see where that investment is, but I'm gonna bet you that there's not a lot of money, to, enough money devoted to that to just address that to begin with. Two, because the country has not advanced in its um, in its use of you know, sort of new sea technologies. So there's not adoption at all of seed that uses less water. I mean, which is one of the coming things. One of the things that's been pushed in Feed the Future is, is, is that technology. And it's, it's, that's coming. That's there, you know. But farmers are not taking advantage of that. Uh, and two, you know, the, uh, the canal system is great, but there are you know, when you look at other agricultural systems and how people have moved to sprinkler systems and which are much more efficient, um, you don't see that except in a few places. I mean, there's a few places in Pakistan where people have adopted these. It's a much more efficient one. Three, on the water side, um, it's not a free good anymore. It can't be. And we have, you know, as the energy sector suffers because people don't pay their bills, it's even worse in the ag sector. One, people don't pay their bills. The big, particularly the big farmers don't want to pay their bills, and they're not, they don't want to pay for water. So that's another change that has to take place. I mean, people have got to pay for the commodity so that you can use that to modernize the system. And until they're able to do that, uh, you're going to have, we're, we're going to continue to have huge inefficiencies as we do in the energy sector. Uh, I think it's very similar. Um, but you're right. I mean, the growth, there, will be a, there could be a, a real competition uh, around that if you grow the, uh, the meat export side of things. On the other hand, if um, there, there is that tremendous potential to, to, to spread some wealth through the community by doing that. So, you know, I'm not an expert in how you would, uh, what all those interconnections are. But unless they deal with some of the basic losses of water, um, you're not going to. You're not going to be able. They're not going to be able to move toward that. So I do see that there's some low-hanging fruit, that possibly that the government could could look at. But again, it takes it back to the other issue, which is that it's been difficult to get attention paid to agriculture in general. And so you know, that's that's one of the real challenges we have. That's why I'm 
that's why I keep raising it, these sort of more obscure issues. But. You, then you. Yeah. So with regards to Pakistan, what are the role of cooperative models in terms of helping farmers reach you know, economic sustainability and everything? Yeah, I, you know, we have had, and I can speak on our program, I, I have a list here of what other donors do, and I can't really speak to the success they've had. Um, we've actually had some success with uh, particularly women farmers in several places, up in Gilgit, Baltistan is one place, uh, some in um, Baluchistan as well. Um, I, you know, I, I can't, it's hard for me to say how successful those have been. I don't think, my sense is co-ops have not been a roaring success there, in part because of the, the way things are structured at the rural level. I mean, obviously things are changing. There's, it's not the same, it's not the same feudal system it used to be. I mean, when you look at the statistics on who owns big chunks of land, that's a very, it's actually a pretty small percentage of all farmers. Um, but um, I, we have not had a lot of success on that. We have, as I said, we have emphasized it in our programs in where we've worked, particularly in Baluchistan and Gilgit. But you know, that's that's not a that's not big. It's not big, and I and I haven't heard in my time there. I haven't heard a lot of discussion about it. Um, obviously, for us in the states, it's been a huge you know success because you can uh, acquire you know farmers support each other. Um, you know, we might promote the. Uh, it's more like the. Um, uh, well, you have the kibbutz system, but you have the moshav system, which is you have individual land, but everything is worked, you know, commonly. So it's, uh, that's, that could be an interesting model for people. Unfortunately, it comes from Israel, so what can you say? You know, it's not going it's not, it's not to work. But, um, but I th yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, you talked about the 18th Amendment and devolution. Uh, can you talk a little bit about both the sort of... Uh, human capacity challenge that that might present in the provincial government yeah. the capability to absorb yeah. new responsibilities and also how uh, you know the transfer of funds is taking place a lot of stuff gets collected at the national level and then gets dispersed to the provinces and yeah and at the same time you have the issue of from USAID's perspective and how do you program when you're used to dealing maybe with national government and all of a sudden have to deal with yeah. four different provinces and four different governments yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody would argue that the 18th Amendment or devolution wasn't something that needed to be done. But we, yeah, all of our programs that have now shifted to the provincial, you know, now we have to deal with provincial bureaucracies. Uh, and they clearly, whether it's education, health, agriculture, um, it, it's, they've just been very weak. I mean, there's a ways to go to train those folks. I mean, we see um, even Minister Darby, we I was at a meeting with him, he spoke quite eloquently about the need to reform the civil service, but he was talking about, and the need to build it up, as he sees an older generation that was very dedicated to, to, the, to the bureaucracy, sort of, there's a weakness below it. I mean, top level people are great. But as you come down below it, you see that weakness, and also a system that doesn't foster necessarily decision making at many levels. It's things have to go up. But yeah, it's been a real challenge for us, and many of our programs in Sindh took way too long to get off the ground because, first of all, you, you we had 
we had bureaucrats that we dealt with who had weak skills. Not a lack of dedication, but definitely weak skills. And two, uh, constant turnover was, has been an issue. Not just at the provincial, at the national. I'm on my fourth secretary at EAD since I got there. So, and they've been excellent, but they haven't stayed long enough. You know, it's been, of course, we've had two Sethys there, so that's been good. So if we talk to the wife, we can talk to the husband. But, um, but yeah, it's a huge issue, and I don't think that we're going to, and I think it's, it's a challenge, like at the agricultural level, for them to grapple with modernization. Uh, you know, they get 57% or, you know, the way the money's dispersed, but when you look at uh, money that's devoted to agriculture, uh, uh, you see that they're trying to increase things in, in education, which is a, a real sore point, and some in health. But I'm not sure agriculture has caught that yet, and I think that there's a lot more that has to be done in training. I mean, we talked to your question. Yeah, there's a lack of training overall on, on for people. I mean, you know, Faisalabad can't supply enough good people to the whole country. It just simply cannot do that. And uh, clearly, farmers are not looking to the government for their extension work. They're just not. I mean, we, everywhere we go, we don't, we don't, that's, we don't hear that. Uh, we hear that people love the fact that, you know, when we partnered with Nestle in the Punjab on dairy, you know, people, Nestle's doing it for their business. Well, we're okay with that, but they're providing the, the, the extension work, not the government, you know. So just it's a very big issue. Just a two-finger on this. Do you see more from the private sector, the private sector having an appetite to join in such partnership beyond commercial interests? Well, I think, that, you know, our experience in um, BFS is that, and Bureau for Food Security and Feed the Future is that, that that's where, they, that's where uh, the president has wanted us to go to take advantage of private sector. The, the theory being that if you can work with companies in their interests, because we've worked with companies over the years on a philanthropic basis, but a philanthropic investment is not necessarily a sustainable investment because they could decide, you know, oh, this is good came off the taxes for this year, that's good. But next year, we're not so interested. Mm -hmm. I think the thing for, the, the reason that it's been an interesting partnership with Nestle is that this program is with their suppliers. These are the people that supply them milk, and now they're getting the quality they want. So I think you'll see, we will see more of that because it is the model that we've applied, I think, in BFS. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, see? So. I think that you'll see more of that. And also, as budgets go, if budgets, you know, come down to something more modest, which they, which they are, um, you know, we, we, you're going to try to leverage your money, and you're going to want to leverage your money with somebody that's got some money. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that, you know, we can do that with some of the companies that are there. Uh, so that's what I'm kind of hoping for. I have. Don't, don't, let, Beverly, Chuck, don't let Chuck ask yeah. a question. Yeah. <laughs> I have Beverly, you, and you.
done, and how is that just on somebody else's bucket list, or, or how how you see uh, the issues of malnutrition? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, complicated issue. So um, obviously our budget isn't big enough to deal with everybody. So there's a combination of things. I mean, when we look at what we do, when I look at our programs in Baluchistan and Gilgit Baltistan, we, we, we target the smallholders. I mean, you're talking about people with less than um, five, five acres, uh, many of them women. women. Uh, a lot of it bringing sort of basic innovations to them, like in Baltistan, it's tunnels, because women, then you can grow vegetables for your kids in the wintertime. Uh, more sturdy greenhouses up in the north because it's just colder. Um, so we're not, we don't, we're not neglecting that part of the population. I mean, if you look at our health program and our nutrition program in Sindh, we have focused it on the areas where stunting is 65%. So we're not forgetting that, but of course, when you've got stunting across the nation that's you know as high as it is, the program's not big enough to reach everybody. Part of it is, and I think um, I, I, I agree with uh, John Miller. He, you know, John's assessment is that if you can target farmers in the five-acre to fifty-acre range, uh, they have enough. You know, they're not wealthy, but they're not poor. And with some more innovation, they, those farmers, and I, I mean, I respect John's work and I've seen it for years, and Chuck made me read it when we were at Fuse, so, you know. But John, I think John's point is a good one. Those people also drive local economies. I, I think, interestingly enough, I mean, one of the things we, I saw up in, and I'm just talking about Scardy because I was just there. But one of the things that happened was, you know, we supported farmers there in terms of greenhouses. And so originally, uh, everything came from, as they call it, down country. Now it's spawned the whole business of guys that are welders. They bring in the aluminum. So guys that were, you know, so it's, now you're, you're expanding that. They're hiring some people who had come from a smaller agricultural side. I think it's important to be able to foster business at that rural area that creates more jobs for people. Because obviously not all farms, small farms are totally viable. People have to get off-farm work to make it, you know, to, to make it go. So I, I don't want to dismiss it. I just think that you've, we have to have a number of tools uh, that go after it. I mean, just the, I think it's around 65% of all farms are under five acres anyway. So there has to be some focus on that. But I do want to point out that um, we, we've contributed to the Benazir Fund. And you can talk about whether you think the Benazir Fund is corrupt or not corrupt or it's getting to what it's, you know, doing what it's supposed to do. But, you know, you have to have social safety nets that reach down to people that support them, that allow them to continue to, to ha have an opportunity. Unless you have effective social safety nets, uh, you know, from a donor perspective, and I'm looking at a list of what all donors do, and I got to tell you, it's not, you know, it's not a huge number of donors that are active in the ag sector. It's just not. So, um, well, yeah, it's a factor too. Yeah, which is why a lot of people, and you know, we're seeing rapid urbanization. So, how do you then 
you know, the, anyway. story. Go ahead. I, I've said enough, I think, on that. Thanks. Um, Brian Bartle from uh, USDA. Um, and I was wondering, you alluded to this uh, mango export project in Punjab, and I was wondering if you could bring to light some lessons learned as far as adopting better practices and harmonizing um, sanitary and phytosanitary yeah. export, and if that is possible to translate that to other value chains. Well, yeah, there's been, there were some, definitely some hits and misses on the fruit fly issue there. Um, but I believe India also experienced that in their exports to England recently. I mean, Indian mangoes were off the table for a while because of a fruit fly issue. I mean, that was one of the things that prevented export was they just didn't have a good system for, you know, an up-to-date system, the, whatever that system, the hot water system, and that enabled them to actually consist, send consistently clean fruit to uh, the U.S. I think that, you know, we've, we've said, look, we're not the prime market for exports. We're too far away. I think they exported to Houston and New York last year. Um, and, but that was, it was pretty limited. But that the Europeans, uh, the French and even the, uh, and England and the Aussies are interested and other countries are interested in that. So our, our difficulty was to get, not, it wasn't to just supply the equipment, it was to get farmers to follow the protocols to make sure that it was done right so that when the fruit got boxed up and shipped that it was clean and that, that was been the challenge. I mean, I think that when they were coming, when the fruit was coming here, they had to go to Iowa to get irradiated or something like that, and it was like eight bucks a mango. Now, I love Pakistani mangoes, but I'm not sure I'm going to pay eight bucks for one. But somebody did in Houston, I can tell you that. But, but I think that was the challenge. You know, you've introduced a new technology, and you have to have, there has to be discipline about how it's been followed. And I think that the same would be said for other fruits that suffer from that kind of, uh, the other pests, that it's the discipline of doing it right. And, uh, you know, it, shipments get rejected from all kinds of countries for all kinds of things. So um, obviously think even we have those slippages as well. But I think that's the challenge for us. And we, we, the, the technology has been introduced, and I think other farmers now who are mango growers are beginning to adopt it. And, and uh, we hope that that discipline, because we'd love to see that, um, uh, we, we'd love to see the exports expand. question is, as you mentioned, and 45% of population of Pakistan is engaged in agriculture. But the status of the Pakistan agriculture is not as like it could be. So I'm just wondering, is there any consideration of future for USAID for institutional development? Because right now I feel like in Pakistan there's no platform mm. for the young professional, for the youth, which might be play a role as a platform for research, for extension, so yeah. consideration of future. And for sustainability as well. Well, one of the, uh, one of the education programs that we just launched uh, is uh, we're, we're going to focus on centers of excellence at four different universities. So uh, two of the universities are going to look at energy and and one, Faisalabad is going to do agriculture and Mehran is going to do water. So I think it's Peshawar and Nuss that are doing energy. Um, part of what we want to try to do there, as I was saying earlier, is we want that to be, uh, we want to expand the opportunities for researchers, but also researchers that are linked to the demand side of things out in the markets. So we hope that that's a platform for young researchers 
to, to come to to practice their, uh, what they've learned. Um, I will say also that it's just a plug for us, but one of the things that we, we, we support, um, we've already given out, it's about, uh, these are merit and needs-based scholarships for kids that go to university. And a lot of those scholarships will do, the whole program will do about 12,000 over time. But we target people from uh, more of the rural areas who don't have the money to go to university. So if, you, if income is less than 30,000 rupees a month, then those are the kids we target. But so we can so we can try to get those kids into agriculture, and they come f into into universities, and they come from areas that are more agriculturally based. So we've tried to target that as well. Um, but um, we we've also you know had a program for the last several years with IFPRI that looks at policy issues. So we've been able to engage a number of of researchers through that. We've been able to support more research papers. Uh, on that, and our hope by doing that is that uh, you know we can continue to highlight the well, identify the issues, identify solutions, but also keep that issue in front of um, of of the government. And fortunately, we have a lot of support from uh, Asan Iqbal, the, the minister of uh, you know planning and development. So he's been a real um, champion of that for us. Yeah. In the interest of time, I'll take two last or three questions, and if you could keep your questions short, and then we'll have And I'll keep my answers long, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, Malcolm O'Dell and Javed Iqbal were both heading to Faisalabad for the, the CAS yeah. Center of Excellence program. Excellent. Fantastic. And so we have, uh, glad you mentioned them. Uh, I have three, sub, three questions. One, the basic question is, what is your dream for coming Yes. True. Small number of women faculty. We hope to increase that. But USAID worldwide has probably uh, had the most extraordinarily successful women's empowerment programs in dozens and dozens of countries, including many Muslim countries with tens of thousands of Muslim women in South Asia yeah. and North Africa, and none in Pakistan. Uh, yes, we deal with women leadership, but as far as getting down, there are thousands of wonderfully highly educated women in Pakistan that really want to do something for their own women. And USAID seems to have dropped the ball on that one. And I just wonder what can be done about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I agree with you entirely about dropping the ball on it. I think there's other programs that deal with gender issues that are significant. But Well, it's a component of it. And, and you can, you can, um, I mean, we can debate that. I mean, I think what I would like to see, you know, certainly there's an opportunity there for the center to reach out to more women farmers. Uh, we've not had an easy time uh, bringing them on to some of the committees that we deal with on, particularly on this IFPI program. Um, yeah, I mean, part of our program, we, we hope that we would love to involve more women. It's obviously important. There are women farmers out there that we should target. Um, and we'll look for the center to, we would look for the center to develop 
programs that would lead to their engagement and their inclusion in the program. Uh, I'm sure that'll be a component that you guys will look at. Uh, at the same time, you know, we'd love to see, as I said, we want to see the connection between the research and the commercial side. Obviously, our, our intention is to try to help on the commercial side so that uh, we expand what agriculture does and it leads to more, um, uh, you know, more wealth in the rural areas and extends that uh, and gets those people connected to the markets in the urban areas. Um, we're not necessarily looking for a square tomato, I think, as UC Davis was famous for. <laughs> square tomato, as UC Davis was famous for some years ago. No square tomatoes. But um, I mean, that's what we're looking for at those, those centers. We, we realize that uh, we've targeted energy, water, and agriculture because we have felt for a while that uh, those were areas that needed uh, greater attention. We're not getting it. And so that's why we've, we've, we've put CAS there. So hopefully, one of the things that it can also do is help continue to help the nation um, pay more attention to its agricultural issues, whether that involves, you know, strictly what kind of seed you're bringing in, whether that's the climate change impacts on agriculture, the water issues are going to be really important. Faisal Bad perhaps working with Mehran on that. So, uh, we, you know, we have high hopes for it. Um, and uh, hopefully the model will be, as others invest, other universities will adopt similar, you know, have some similar institutions that can can spread it elsewhere because you know the reach will only go so far. So yeah. I have 30 seconds for both your questions and 15 seconds for you to answer them. Okay. <coughs> if, uh, my name is Karen Edwards. I'm with the World Initiative for Soil Human Health. We're implementing an aquaculture program in Pakistan, and you mentioned livestock and dairy, which eat a lot of soy. I'm wondering if you had any comments about aquaculture and its role and what the World Bank is also doing. I'll take his questions too, and then. We'll Suhail Malik, I advise free in the Pakistan Studies yeah. Thank you so much for your emphasis on agriculture yeah. and for your support Thank of the you. program. I just wanted some thoughts going forward in terms of your thinking on the strategic prioritization over the next maybe four or five years yeah. in terms of the seven yeah. years you yeah, yeah. I, when I saw you in Islamabad, I was just blown away by your talk there. I think I told you that when I saw you there. So, um, on aquaculture, we haven't had an emphasis on that. Obviously, it's an, it could be a very important uh, source of food for people, um, and we just it has not been a source of emphasis for us in our program so much. That's the best I can tell you. I don't know. I think the bank has been emphasizing it, so we have been more on the you know land crops and some dairy stuff. So I mean, in the future, look, I mean, I. We, 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 there are so many issues there. It, it, I, mean, I think you would be better placed to talk about what is to emphasize. But clearly, from my perspective, I mean, I think something has to happen on the, uh, something has to modernize. There has to be, the country needs better seed. It, it is just the seed industry is just so weak. Uh, there has to be greater efficiency on the, on the irrigation side. It, it, is a, it is a system that's creaky, and it has to be improved to, to deal with that. Uh, and finally, I think then there still has to be some reforms in the rural areas around uh, more women empowerment uh, because of the role that women play in agriculture, and uh, better, and and also the other issues that will boost people around health and education that make it possible for those farmers to engage in more modern agriculture. So, 
th those are my initial ones. I mean, the, 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 the number of issues is so great. So anyway, that's the best I've got. Greg, that was fascinating. Thank you very much. As you can see from the interest, Thank we would you like that. you to come back again. Uh, I'm happy. Thank you very much. Yeah.